We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Welcome to All That To Say, and today it's my privilege to welcome Bob Dalton to our podcast. Bob, thanks so much for carving this time out because you're a guy who's got plenty of irons in the fire, so I know your time matters. Thanks for giving us some time. Thanks for having me. Well, that's what uh, people say at the beginning of the podcast. We hope you say the same at the end. And right now you're talking to us from your uh, home in San Diego, California. Is that right? That's correct. San Diego has some charm. That's just my uh, experience. But that's not where you always lived. Where'd you come from? Yeah, I'm from Oregon uh, in a little town called Coos Bay. Uh, it's oh. right off the coast and uh, just a little fisherman town. Coos Bay, Oregon, that is your home place? I mean, I'm a Seattle guy, so I got that Oregon coast down. And Coos Bay is beautiful country. But then so is San Diego. And... Uh, the reason that we're talking to Bob today on All That to Say is because Bob is a kind of polymath. That's what I'm using the word, polymath. Uh, we don't hear that much uh, these days, but a polymath is someone defined as, you know, just like a master of many different disciplines, somebody who excels at correlating knowledge, curating ideas, delivering on multiple fronts. And hey, I'm talking about Bob Dalton here because this guy... Uh, is a businessman, he is an entrepreneur, he is an activist, he is an author, he is a speaker. You've got your own podcast going. You just can't sit still, it seems to me, because you're looking around your world and it needs some fixing, and you're working it. And I want to start uh, uh, talking to you, Bob, about your business, the thing that uh, has really brought you to the attention of a larger audience, at least for me. I mean, you're in Forbes magazine. Forbes is, is featuring you. That's a threshold. And that has to do with your business called Sackcloth and Ashes. Sackcloth and Ashes. Uh, it's a company that makes blankets. And that seems pretty straightforward, only it's more than that. Tell me about Sackcloth and Ashes. Yeah, I launched the brand back in 2014. And it was inspired by my mom who lived on the streets for a period of time. Uh, her journey on the streets inspired me to do something about homelessness. Um, I was actually the guy that would drive by people on the street and judge them. And because my mom is the hardest working woman I know, for her to end up in that situation, it completely changed my paradigm of how I understand homelessness. So I started calling homeless shelters in my area to ask what they needed. And they said they needed blankets. I was familiar with the one-for-one one model, business model, and uh, came up with the idea that for every blanket that I sell, I'll uh, donate a blanket to a homeless shelter. And that quickly evolved into local homeless shelter. So not only do we sell a blanket, we'll donate a blanket to your local homeless shelter uh, based on your zip code and your community. We wanted to give people an opportunity to make a difference down the street from where they live because homelessness is something that we all have in our backyard. Oh, I mean, okay. What you have just said in a few uh, sentences 
is the stuff of hours of questions running in my head. So let's start with your mom. You got involved in this because your mom was on the streets. She was homeless. And uh, let me just say here that I have a son who has worked with uh, organizations up in Seattle, the Pacific Northwest, where he lives. Uh, and he, he got engaged in addressing this, this very big issue in urban America, not just in these United States, all around the world, but especially in this country, this big issue that's developed. And he, he would say to me, Dad, uh, they're not homeless. They're people who live outside because he felt like the word homeless carries a certain kind of baggage and, and it, we project judgments uh, on people who might live outside. Brings us back to your mom. You're saying, I used to be that guy who projected. Then my mom found herself in a predicament where she did not have a home. Can, can you tell me about that? How does that happen? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, she uh, raised my sister and I by herself and her support system was her older brother and her mom. And there was a couple year streak where she had lost her mother and her brother. And, um, you know, when you lose your main support system and the people that you rely on for emotional support, financial support, whatever it is, um, it's even beyond that. It's, it's your family and the people that you love the most. And so she had lost both of them and it sent her on a downhill spiral where she, um, it was difficult for her to keep things together. And she got into a pretty tough place of addiction and, and, uh, a lifestyle that she wanted to get out of. And she called me up one day and she said, Bob, I'm going to start my life over. And move across the United States. I need a fresh start. And so two days later, she called me, she sold everything uh, that she had left on Craigslist, booked a one-way plane ticket from Oregon to Florida, packed a suitcase and two pairs of interview clothes, flew over to Florida. She thought her aunt would take her in and she didn't. And she ended up sleeping on beaches and benches. Um, a good friend and mentor of mine who I interviewed recently, Alan Graham out in Austin, Texas, he has um, uh, shared with me that the majority of the homeless uh, population is a result of a uh, lack of family structure and community. And so um, that's the situation that my mom found herself in, lost a few family members, uh, had other family members that could have helped. Um, when I tried to help, I was on the other side of the United States trying to figure out what to do, trying to send her money, trying to figure out how to fly her home. And at that point she was on her own journey. And, um, and I just tried to be the best support that I possibly could in that time period. And for the next four years after that, as she worked her way back to health. How old would your mom have been in this kind of tumbling crisis? Give me a, an approximate age. Uh, yeah, I believe she was about 52. All right. And so, uh, as you've described your mom's journey and uh, and the circumstances that led to it, again, it's always more complex, isn't it, than just somebody made a bad choice? Or that's what we want to believe sometimes, that people who live outside have have fumbled the ball on their own and and therefore there they are and so on. And it's it's a complicated weave. And as you as you discovered this reality with someone so important to you as your mom, 
that led you to want to problem solve? I think this is the polymath part of Bob. <laughs> you know, are people made this way? Do you learn this skill? What? But you you saw this problem and you started to think about what can I do? Not just for my mom, but for the whole expanse of this crisis that is facing so many people uh, on the streets today, which led you to sackcloth and ashes. And um, the one-for-one -one model, you say, uh, something like a Tom's. If I sell one, I give one. That's the idea, right? Yeah, very similar. Um, you know, in, in 2014, you know, Tom's had a massive shift. Um, and that's the same year that I launched the company. Um, a documentary came out about Tom's called Poverty, Poverty Inc., and um, it showed the damage of, of what a one-for-one -one model could do by simply sending products overseas and potentially eliminating that need uh, for, you know, the jobs in the local economies in these certain areas. And so um, it wasn't a coincidence that during that same time period, as I'm sorting through the effectiveness of the one-for-one -one model, um, how to go about it accurately and effectively in a way where um, I could be bringing value rather than taking away value from a community. And blankets are a need of homeless shelters. And it was something that I felt like, um, you know, the majority of homeless shelters in the United States could always use more blankets as they service the people in the community. So I had a lot of those types of things sorting through my mind when launching a one-for-one -one company as it started to get a little bit of negative press in that same time period. But I felt like the answer was to make it local and to focus our efforts locally, give people the opportunity to do something locally. And, um, and that's what I have, what, that's what has evolved into me dedicating the rest of my life to the mission of um, uh, supporting and, and encouraging and inspiring people to take action on a local level. And, and the blankets, uh, one blanket for a homeless shelter for every blanket uh, that you sell. These blankets uh, are high-quality blankets. I mean, uh, the term blanket can cover a whole lot of product. Uh, these are, are really high-end, I'd call them, blankets. And uh, I've, I've looked online. I I'm telling you, there's going to be one of your blankets in my house, I promise, because uh, I just know uh, that my wife is going to love this, and, and I'm all in for your, your ambition. But talk to me about that. How you, you decide to do a blanket, but what kind of blanket and why? And why this high-end blanket? And how does that work to achieve relief for people who are homeless? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, first of all, I'm disappointed that my team hasn't set you on yet. Um, <laughs> no, no sweat. So, uh, no, no, I'm in. I'm buying it. That's a side conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, we started with... Uh, I started with a sewing machine and a roll of fabrics from Joann's and I try to learn how to sew and realize very quickly that I'm horrible at sewing. So I hired my first seamstress in my community named Tammy. Tammy started making blankets for us and we caught an early break. Um, five months into it, I got an email from Instagram and Instagram said, Bob, we love your story. We love what you're doing. We want to feature you on Instagram's Instagram account. And at the time they had 42 million followers. And so that, made me, um, they posted about us the day before black Friday. And so that made me want to, or not made me like it forced me to find other blanket sources other than having Tammy make all the blankets. 
And so, um, found a great manufacturer in Italy, um, making fabric from, uh, recycled fabrics and on Jack hard looms and all of the fabric gets made in Italy and gets shipped to our production hub in Oregon, where we cut, sew, label and polybag all of the product. And we hire, uh, refugees to help with all the sewing now in, uh, in our area. And so, um, yeah, the blankets are extremely high quality. Uh, at one point, Italy made 80% of the fabric in the world. Their um, fabric experts passed on for generations. They're amazing people. We have an amazing community over there. And um, yeah, and then as far as the donation blankets, uh, we really tried to engage with the organizations that we're donating to to figure out exactly the types of blankets that they need. You know, we didn't want to go about it naively and think, okay, these nice cotton and wool blankets that shelters need them. We were able to discuss with the shelters, many of them, and figure out exactly what they need. High volume and high turnover shelters need fleece blankets uh, so they can wash them every night to prevent bed bugs. So high volume, high turnover shelters, we send fleece blankets. And then men's and women's programs where people are in programs longer than you know, a night, mm -hmm. maybe up to a couple weeks or a month where they don't have to wash them every day. Uh, we'll, we'll send our the same ones we sell on our website, the cotton and wool blankets. And so um, we've even developed a blanket specifically for kids in foster care and, uh, and working on creating a specific blanket for uh, uh, relief efforts. And so we're really trying to be specific and strategic on the types of blankets that not only do we sell, but the ones that we donate uh, to organizations around the U.S. and beyond. They're just beautifully done and conceived. I, I just have to talk to you about the design. I mean, the whole mm. idea of sackcloth and ashes is so cool. I mean, it all makes sense. But uh, for, for the consumer, for someone who is just looking for a blanket that is going to do the job and have some style, what you've got offered is a whole uh, palette of design options. I mean, everything from kind of earth tones to bright colors to what I would describe as almost Native American design motifs to uh, geometrics to, you know, flowing fiber. I mean, there's something going on with you, Bob, that's uh, back to the polymath. It's not just about a blanket. It's about a blanket with style. How do you come up with the patterns? Mm -hmm. And do you have a team that's designing or, or watching the market to say, man, right now, these kind of Pacific Ocean blankets are going to be the thing? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, well, we obviously evolved from just black fleece fabric from Joann's and <laughs> Um, was really, you know, early on, I was pre-selecting designs from Italy that they already had made. Mm -hmm. And many of them were those native inspired types of designs. And in 2018, 2019, I started meeting with some of the people in the native American community. And they said, Hey, these designs could be offensive to our community, um, mm -hmm. and culturally appropriating and keeping resources from the native community, um, because you're selling these designs. And so I quickly had a conversation with my team and we decided to discontinue all of our native inspired designs in which eight of our 10 best-selling products were those blankets um, and discontinued them within the next six months after that. 
um, from that point on, it opened up the door for us to collaborate with a few native artists and they were able to design a few of our collections in which hundred percent of the profits from those collections get reinvested back into the native community. And so I felt really strongly that we uh, needed to make that decision not to avoid punishment and not to be uh, rewarded, but to do the right thing. That was at the end of the day, really striving as a brand to do the right thing in every area that we possibly can. I believe that that sent us in a direction to get even more creative as uh, a team. And since then we've, uh, our team, a very small design team has designed every collection on our website with the exception of the native blankets. And, um, they do an exceptional, exceptional job understanding where the market's at, what's relevant, what's going to be relevant and really creating sp specific product based on the collaborations that we have, but they've, I'm, I'm very, very proud of our team. And the goal from the beginning was always to build a quality brand that happens to help the homeless rather than to um, help the homeless in, in hopes that we build a brand. And there, there was a difference in that. Mm -hmm. We're not a charity. We are a business at the end of the day. And we wanted to create a high quality brand, build a platform, gain influence and credibility, and then make a difference. And I believe that's the most effective strategy. And so you are a for-profit company. And it's turned out to be profitable. Correct. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. You know, uh, you may not know this history, or most people don't care. Maybe I'm a, I'm a kind of uh, you know trivia buff. But J.C. Penney, one of the great retailers in American history, uh, was founded in Wyoming by a guy named James Cash Penny. But he actually he named his store the Golden Rule Store because. He was a man of faith in those days, and he he believed that the best business would be one that was treat other people the way you'd like to be treated. And, and of course, J.C. Penney became this huge operation long after J.C. Penney originally died and passed on. Uh, all I'm saying here is that there's a certain uh, profitable power in caring about and thinking about the impacts and the outcomes of your business at every step. And what I'm hearing you describe, Bob, is so extraordinary because you're, you're describing an enterprise that at every level, whether it be the design or the fabric or the profit or the proceeds or the object, it all weaves together to what makes a better place for all of us. No, you don't have to respond to that. That's my uh, summary, but it, it's really impressive, Bob. Thank you for just doing it that way. And having said that, um, the idea is to provide a blanket for everyone you sell because you had an intersection with this issue of homelessness. You made some calls, found out that's what homeless shelters needed, and that led to an ambition, a goal, not just a few thousand blankets. You've got this blanket the United States. Tell me about that. Yeah. So by, after launching the company in 2014, we grew the platform, uh, to have about, you know, around a million people following our brand by 2018. And that's when we decided to launch our first major campaign called blanket, the United States, which is our campaign to donate 1 million blankets to homeless shelters and programs by our 10 year anniversary, which is June 1st, 2024. And, um, you know, it was just an ambitious goal that I wanted to set for myself and team and, and obviously a million blankets is, you know, 
not much different than 700,000 or 1.3 million. It's just, it was just a personal goal that I thought, Hey, let's try to donate a million blankets and partner with companies along the way and, and, and allow individuals to participate in something that felt structured and had a story to it. And, um, and that opened up the door for us to work with companies. So right off the gate, we partnered with Subaru in Oregon. They bought 2,500 blankets, every blanket, every car that they sold, they give a blanket as a gift. And we donated 2,500 blankets to shelters in Oregon. Uh, shortly after that, a company bought 5,000, then a company bought 10,000 and then 20,000 and so on and so forth. So now we have partnerships with companies, um, that are giving blankets as gifts to their employees or their customers and making a difference in local communities. So we're partnered with Churchill Mortgage Nationwide. They bought 20,000 blankets. Every mortgage they do, they give a blanket as a gift. Uh, KB Home, they're an amazing home builder here in the U.S. Every home they build in the United States, they give a blanket as a gift. So it's creating opportunity for us to collaborate with companies that want to make a difference on a local level and provide a quality gift to their customers or employees. And um, and that's been a far... A uh, fun expansion of our brand is being able to partner with these amazing companies and get to participate in a much larger conversation. Obviously with me, it's not just about the blankets. The blankets are a bridge to a much, much larger conversation. And, and it's been fortunate to be in the, the rooms and the circles uh, with these people and be able to, to be the voice and saying, Hey, um, let's not just make it about the blankets, but let's use our platforms to elevate quality work and solutions here in the United States that's actually doing something to move the needle with homelessness. And that's what I believe is uh, my role in all of this. The name of the company, Sackcloth and Ashes, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's a biblical term, uh, Bob, I'm sure you know that. And you know, this is not Shakespearean English, this is uh, King James English out of the uh, King James Version of the Bible. Sackcloth and ashes often referenced in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New, um, a theological premise about the outward declaration of a sense of humility or sorrow or mourning or penitence. There's all kinds of ways that it, it shows up in uh, the ancient world and in the theological stream that has been captured in the Bible. Tell me, how did, how did that match this company for you, sackcloth and ashes? It, I'm going to guess there's a lot of people you talk to who've heard of that phrase, they have a sense of it. Some people might have a more like uh, deep dive into where that comes from. Where, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I mean, um, coming from my journey of judging people on the street uh, and then trying to change my attitude and mind uh, about the homeless, sackcloth and ashes means mourning and repentance. So the whole concept of it was every time somebody wraps themselves in a blanket, it symbolizes mourning over the homeless population and repentance by contributing to a homeless shelter in their area. Obviously, this is a journey of mourning and repentance for myself, um, but I do believe as a nation, um, specifically the people that have the ability to buy our expensive blankets, uh, they're on their own journey of figuring out where they're at with this homeless problem. And, um, you know, my hope is, um, without even people knowing is that these blankets symbolize something that's much deeper than just having another product in your house, but it symbolizes, uh, a changing of the mind and um, a changing of perspective of something that I feel like is 
desperately needed right now. Do you find that when you're developing a partnership with a business like a car dealership or a home builder or a mortgage company, that they ask about that, that they ask about the name of the company? Um, not often, honestly. Um, it's kind of a mysterious enough name to where it just, it is what it is. And, yeah, that's right. uh, you know, um, but when they do, you know, I'm honest with them. It's, I'm on a journey of changing my perspective on the issue of homelessness and more often than not leading with honesty in every area right now is something that I, a lot of people relate to. They've mm -hmm. felt they more people than, um, than not, uh, can relate to judging people on the street. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that it speaks to a universal audience right now. And, um, so religious or non-religious and, and technically it's, you know, it's ancient Jewish symbolism. So it's, it's, uh, more of a, a particular tradition of meaning mm -hmm. than it is attached to, uh, some sort of a religious aspect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just usually open, you know, with them and, say, Hey, yeah, this sackcloth and ashes is in the new Testament and the old Testament. But at the end of the day, this is the meaning of it. And this is why I named the company. It. I'm trying to change my mind. And you're changing your mind and you're changing the mind of uh, people who may buy the product, even though they may be unawares. I, I, I just really want to say, Bob, I'm a guy who's got a little bit of that mystical going on. I think there's something there even as you've described, even if a person may not have the whole story unpacked for them, there's something about the touch and the feel and the, and the embrace, the clothing of the blanket that you just cannot know where that might lead someone uh, to think and to reconsider or to process. And I just want to applaud that. I think there's some real merit to the whole concept in addition to the obvious tactile relief of a blanket in a place where someone doesn't have one. As, as you're doing this, you, you really emphasize the locality of it. Uh, the one-for-one -one model you've described is, is for you working because it's really focused on a community. Uh, my guess is if it's a car dealership in Oregon, the blankets are going to homeless shelters in Oregon. If it's uh, home builders in a particular part of the country, it's that neighborhood. As you said, you tie it to the zip code of the purchaser. Do you see that? Do you see uh, outcomes or do you get stories back or, or do you see... Uh, fruit, to borrow another biblical term, as it were, uh, from that focus on the lo local need? Does it build, help me look this way. Yeah. Do you see fruit coming from it? And do you think that people who live in a, in a community are thinking, you know what, I'm going to do this because it helps my town? I'd like to hope so. But, you know, it's become a big part of my work in that um, being able to donate so many blankets um, it's opened up the door for me to go visit a lot of homeless shelters and programs in the United States and do what's called a blanket drop where I go with a couple of folks from my team and actually pass out blankets in person and get to invite executives from companies or, you know, people that have platforms and celebrities in the area that want to come and join. And, um, the blankets, as I said, it, it, are there a bridge that's getting me connected to people doing the real work providing blankets to homeless shelters and programs is admirable, but it's not moving the needle when it comes to homelessness. 
So the blankets have gotten me connected with the people who are actually doing the work on a local level. And more often than not, uh, I walk away and think, how do people not know about that work? Um, with the media so filled with, you know, issue-focused content and fear-driven media, uh, there's an amazing amount of things that it's hap- that's going on in our communities that a lot of people don't know and they're not aware of. And so over COVID, um, all my travel stopped and I was able to reflect on that. And two things stood out to me. One was a lot of people want to make a difference and they don't know where to start. And there's a lot of organizations that desperately need awareness and support. And there's this interesting divide between people that want to do something and organizations that need something to be done right in their own backyard. And so I worked um, for the last 18 months or so constructing a website called Love Your City. And the website's loveyourcity.org. And people can look up their city on the website and we'll show them the grassroots organizations in their community and give them the opportunity to donate or fill out a volunteer form and actively get involved. And um, over time, as we build Love Your City, it's not just getting them connected to local organizations, but I want to help educate them on what those organizations are doing. And so we're going to be creating a lot of media and content and curating a lot of content to helping people understand what's going on around them. I use the example of, you know, it's not bad to drink Starbucks. I think Starbucks is great coffee, but if we're not aware of the local coffee shops around us, we might not, you know, uh, have a, a, a chance at seeing whose coffee is actually better. And, uh, uh, a lot of people drink Starbucks as the analogy, uh, because they don't know the local coffee shops. And, um, I have to say that after observing a lot of grassroots organizations on the ground and after observing a lot of national institutional nonprofits, it's the grassroots organizations that mostly have the solutions for that particular area in addressing a problem and allowing people to actively get involved in an effective way. And so local is everything. It's the thing I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to the rest of my career the rest of my work is the only way to move the needle on society's largest problems is they have to be addressed on a local level and they have to be highlighting and elevating and supporting solutions. I'm so glad you segued into Love Your City because uh, it is another whole piece of the Bob Dalton pie that's fascinating. I've uh, got it up right now on my uh, laptop. Uh, the website, which describes the um, the ambition of how you love your city. And it says, we envision a future where every person contributes to their local community. That If all of us were vested in our local community, that that would make the difference. And then uh, you've got this statement as a mission. We connect people to local grassroots nonprofits and enable them to donate, volunteer, and advocate. And then when you go down one more place, uh, you can connect and contact and you can type in your city and it comes up. I I typed in my place. I'm in a place called Anderson, Indiana, and it's on the northeast side of the Indianapolis metro. 
And so when I typed in Anderson, Indiana, it didn't come up to Anderson because we're, uh, well, I don't tell my neighbors I said this. It's more and more a, a suburb of Indianapolis. They'd like to say that it's not so much, but that's what's happening. But what came up immediately was here are other, we're trying to connect to Anderson, but here are places close to you and Indianapolis and Fort Wayne and Cincinnati came up. Well, anyway, I put it in Indianapolis and actually mm -hmm. what you have in Indianapolis is you have things in my town, including the Christian Center, which is a homeless shelter mm -hmm. in Anderson, Indiana. And it came up under the Indianapolis Metro. And that led me to the Christian Center. I'm just demonstrating, Bob, it works. Just a newbie like me quickly navigated to my town. And that's not the only place in my town in your catalog. There was a whole group of things. Now, I live here. I pay attention. I know about them. I'm just suggesting that everything you saw, everything I saw was so credible and spot on. What a great tool. But that leads me to, how do you do that? How do you screen? How do you scrub? Can anybody get on your page? How do you know that it's legit? How do you operate something like that? Yeah. Um, well, during COVID, you know, there's five roles in my company, Sackcloth and Ashes, that I was going to furlough. And uh, because their roles no longer became valid with the lack of travel. And instead of furloughing them, I said, um, would you guys be interested in helping me build one of the most well-curated, robust databases in the United States for uh, nonprofits, specifically in humanitarian categories of seniors, veterans, homeless, food, and youth. And, um, and so they did. And um, the other thing that really stood out to me about the database aspect was during COVID, I called a lot of leaders I was connected to and just said, hey, I know, you know, I have a minimal platform, but if, if there's any way that I can help and support you during this time, please let me know. And um, I got a call from the CEO of Cost Plus World Market, and he said, we're going to be shutting down all of our world market locations temporarily. Can you send me your database of homeless shelters? We're going to mobilize all of the food and world market to women and children's programs. So within 48 hours, we got them our database of homeless shelters that we had for sackcloth and they mobilized all the food and world market across the country. And that showed me the power of having a database. And so I started to work with my team and, you know, we built the database from the ground up where uh, we launched loveyourcity.org in a hundred cities and over 4,000 organizations. And, um, and that's going to continue to build and grow and, and become more and more defined and redefined um, as we get larger and as my team grows. And um, eventually we're going to find creative ways to um, certify nonprofits as well in certain areas so that people know exactly where their money's going, who they can trust and, and uh, what organizations are, are good stewards of these resources. We need a higher level of accountability in the United States with nonprofits um, and not because I'm trying to throw shade or call anyone out, but, uh, to gain more trust with people who want to help and people who want to give and support. Um, we need that accountability bar to rise because the only accountability right now is the government, which is little to none. And there's a lot of red tape. And so it's a long-term vision here, but I really want to, you know, work on building bridges and, and getting individuals, uh, involved. Um, it's really important to me um, and keeping resources local. That's another big thing. Um, I think it's going to be, uh, that's a huge, huge part of this whole thing.
where did you come from, Bob? I mean, I'm just thinking, how did you get wired? So you, you're seeing problems, uh, you have this entrepreneurial spirit, and there's, I mean, many people have that kind of ambition and that natural proclivity to problem solve, to create, to launch, you, you do that, but you have a deep, deep passion for making life better, for making this world better. Is that something you grew up with when you were a kid where you think, you know, someday I'm going to, I want to change this world or, you know what, I can't wait to create my own business. Uh, you know what, other people are going to follow me down a, a road to some cause. Is that something that you remember growing up or, or when did you switch on to developing and building things like this for the common good? Yeah, I um, grew up single parent home. Mom was waitress in most of the, her days uh, to pay the bills. And uh, myself and my little sister, eight years younger than me, um, you know, grew up in a little poor area of the community. And um, so I had no father figure and not a lot of male figures that I looked up to. And then my sophomore year in high school, I had a gentleman named Todd Tardy came into my life. He was a young life leader, about 35 years old. And, um, he went to our games. He'd work out with us after school. He invited me over to his house for dinner with his family. And he just took a huge interest and invested a lot into me and, uh, and all my peers. And it changed my life. Um, he was the one who really demonstrated the love of God, how to love his community, how to love his family. And he was the first male figure in my life that I looked toward and said, I want to be like him when I'm older. And so, um, you know, he taught me some really, really basic things. The things that stood out to what Todd instilled in me was he'd take us to breakfast every Friday morning and he would talk about how we serve. We need to serve people. And, um, you know, when you walk into the school, don't just open the door and, and rush in, but look behind you, see if there's anyone coming, hold the door open for them. Um, just basic acts of service, care for people. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I sat down with him at a coffee shop and said, Todd, I want to be a leader. He said, you already are one. And he was the first person to speak that over me. He gave me my first opportunity to speak on a stage um, where I fell in love with the art form of crafting a message and delivering a message, which I do often still today. And um, yeah, I think from that point on, it was a no brainer for me. I wanted to dedicate the rest of my life to serving people and finding creative ways to, to care for people in my community. Um, so it's been, a, it's, it changed the trajectory of my life, that one relationship, that one example, and you can't underestimate you investing in people, especially young people, um, showing them, you know, showing them an example of how to live and, and loving them where they're at. And, um, it changed my life. And so he's, I attribute a lot to those early days. It's an extraordinary testimony um, that is so inspiring because all of us have the capacity, don't we, to speak into someone else's life just like Todd spoke into yours. We just don't think about it, or we don't do it, mm -hmm. or we're too busy, or we don't think it matters, or nobody would want to listen to me, but uh, that it, you've just identified, uh, talk about locality, <laughs> where you live right now, who's Who's, exactly. who's in the neighborhood or who's at the restaurant or who, who's on the ball field? Somebody is looking for somebody to care for them and believe in them and call the best out of them 
and help form them. And that's what happened to you. And here you are doing the same, which is a great segue into a book you've written. I mean, you have written a book for children called Everyone is Someone. And the theme of this book seems to me to be about the value of loving people, that everyone has merit, everyone has worth. And no matter what the circumstance or what our our prejudgment might be, there's something inside of them that is worthy of our love and respect. Tell me about the book. Where did it come from and why? Yeah, I mean, the same answer is I had it on my bucket list to one day write a children's book. And um, one night, randomly, I woke up at like 3 a.m. and subconsciously thought, no matter how big, no matter how small, everyone is someone we need to love all. And I thought it was a catchy kind of rhyme. And uh, I grabbed my phone, wrote it down, and then I just wrote the rest of it in kind of a stream of thought. And then I woke up in the morning, was looking at the poem, didn't feel like it needed any changes, and thought, what type of medium am I going to share this particular message? I felt like it was a special message that kind of came out of nowhere. And so thought, hey, here's my opportunity to cross something off my bucket list and, and put it in the format of a kid's book. I thought it would be really kind of a creative idea to do that. Reached out to a couple people, asked if they knew any illustrators or artists, and I got connected to an amazing artist named Richie Collins in Scotland and uh, had a phone call with him. And one phone phone call was all it took. He said, I'll, I love the project. I want to hand paint every single page. And so he hand painted on canvas every page in that book took him eight months. And, um, it's a really special project and something that I hope to be able to dedicate more time to in the next, uh, few years. Cause I really do want to bring that message to as many kids as possible. Uh, I get videos all the time of kids memorizing the book and the parents laughing and saying, my kid doesn't even know how to read. Um, and I really do hope that it's, um, kind of an anthem for this next generation is that everyone is someone we need to love all. Um, and uh, despite, you know, the differences and uh, the disagreements and the ways in which we're different, you know, we, we need to love all. And that's the, that's the hope. And I think being able to speak that over the youth is a extremely important message and just as much so for parents. But I think there's a bright future ahead if we can get hundreds of thousands of kids memorizing a, a message like that. Well, the book is beautifully illustrated. I will say that I've looked it over. Uh, bold colors. Uh, just while while the art is straightforward and direct, it you want to stare at it some more. You don't just flip through the pages. And the content mm -hmm. does have a certain rhyme and rhythm to it that makes it easy to digest. I I have right now as I'm talking to you about it, in my mind I see, no matter how dirty, and there's a picture of a child digging in a hole of dirt, <laughs> you know, everyone needs to be loved. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just so vivid that it, it, it portrays people in all different kinds of uh, circumstances, and yet how everyone is created uh, with that, that unique and wonderful capacity to be human and to be loved and to love back. Now, you talked about bucket lists, Bob. Uh, how many buckets, how many things are in that bucket? Are you, have you got some new bucket lists? What's coming next? Are you, are you going to help us solve uh, 
the Ukrainian war or maybe, uh, uh, you know, the gun issues? What's going on in your head? What do you think? Yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm truly, I'm not an expert in anything. I'm definitely not the one out there solving anything. I feel like my role in all of this is um, to find the people who are doing good work around the world and use my platform and everything I possibly can to elevate their voices. I think the most powerful voices right now that we need to hear from is the grassroots leaders in their communities that are doing the real work. And, um, and so this last uh, couple of weeks, I launched love your city podcast where I'm hitting the road. I travel every week. I go to where these leaders, grassroots leaders are at and I interview them. And, um, I am spending about 80% of my time, uh, 20% of my time on sackcloth and ashes, 20% of my time on the foundation, love your city. And, um, I guess, you know, 60% of my time is spent on the podcast mm-hmm. and, um, I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm interviewing the best of the best solutionists in the United States. The government needs to hear from these people businesses, business leaders need to hear from these people. Um, community members need to hear from these people. I think it is the most important voice that we can hear from right now is grassroots leaders in the United States. And, um, and I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make that happen. That's all I'm focused on right now. And I, and I have a long-term vision for it and, um, whether it evolves into something bigger, I'm going to let it take its course, but, it's uh it has my full attention and um it's what i'm banking on personally it's what i'm betting on um as the most effective strategy that i personally can do to help move the needle move things along so i'm i'm honed in on it i'm i'm laser focused and uh i'm in it for the long run this is what my work is going to be uh when i look back on my life can you share with us an illustration, somebody you've met at the grassroots that you think people need to hear this person's voice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've pre-recorded eight episodes already. And um, the one that stands out the most to me is the one right here in my own backyard. His name's Jordan Burdine. started Humanity Showers. And he's providing, uh, he has a mobile shower uh, that he's providing showers to almost every single person living on the streets in North County, San Diego. Um, I believe he has five shower trailers now, over a hundred volunteers. Um, he's um, the only money that he gives out are to the homeless who are helping him run the showers. It's a hundred percent ran by the homeless community. Um, he's servicing more people than uh, some of the largest homeless shelters in the United States. And he's doing all of this on a $2,500 a month budget. It is a case study to where he only needs $2,500 a month to service almost every single person in our community that's living on the streets where you have tens, 20 millions of dollars being poured into institutional nonprofits and, um, and uh, servicing less people than him. So I believe that what I've learned from him is you don't need a lot to do a lot. And 
sometimes the most effective work in our communities costs the least. And we need to pay attention to that. It's really, really important as a society that we pay attention to that because I don't think we need a lot of money to solve these problems. We need better solutions and we need to hear from these people who are creating them. How's your mom? You told us her story. Has she landed mm -hmm. in a better place or what would you say? Yeah. After four years of kind of going through a, a whirlwind, um, I moved her back to Oregon, uh, where I was living at the time. And I was doing a blanket drop at a women's program called shepherd's door in Portland, Oregon. And, um, you know, doing my normal thing, telling the story and passing out blankets to the women in the program. And they said, where's your mom now? I said, I just moved her back to Oregon and, uh, she's going through kind of this difficult time in life and, uh, struggling with some addiction and, you know, living with a friend. And they said, well, Hey, we got 38 out of 40 slots filled in this program. Can you get her here for an interview? And I said, you know, I'll try if you know, uh, or have dealt with anybody with addiction, you know, it's, it's I'll try, uh, you don't make that decision for them. They need to make it themselves. So I drove over to the house she was staying at. I opened up my car door and I said, mom, you have an opportunity to change your life. And this might be the last shot that you have. Um, but I need you to know if you don't get in my car, I will 100% support you. And, um, she got in my car and I took her to the program. She, got accepted the next day. Cause the first day she came in, she blew, um, enough to, uh, not be accepted. Mm -hmm. And then the next day she got in and, and she got sober. Um, now she's three years sober and she's on staff working for that organization. Um, she's healthier than I am mentally and physically. She is doing incredible has a great community around her. And, um, yeah, I'm extremely proud of her. And, and uh, I'm re really excited to see kind of what happens next in her life. What, what, what's ahead? Well, um, I'm a guy who thinks that those outstanding qualities you've just described in her capacity, her willingness uh, to tackle her challenges and uh, how she's now flourishing and helping others, uh, that, that's you, Bob. <laughs> there you are. You're you are you are also bearing witness to something in that gene pool, something in that line that has the capacity to do great good. You're a person of faith, Bob. I mean, Young Life is a great ministry that uh, you've mentioned. It helped intersect with you and turn you around. You've got a, a company called Sackcloth and Ashes. You are. Uh, doing the work of what I would say is kingdom work. How do you, how do you relate to, or let me go back, even, even your book, your book, you awakened in the night and you had a verse by that. Uh, I mean, a, a poem, a, a rhyme that had gripped you and had fallen into your head and heart. And now there's a book uh, that captures it. These things to me suggest the voice of God or, or the prompt of heaven. Do you sort your ideas out this way? And, and how do you, how do you live with that? Or what would you say to someone else say, man, I wish I, I could think that way or hear that way or be prompted that way. 
Yeah, I mean, my faith is at a um, any any. I have to say, any life of an entrepreneur is a life of faith. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to to be able to be in this type of business where you're throwing yourself into the into the newness of every day and and uh, really trust in the process and many times kind of at the end of your rope in many seasons thinking, how am I going to pull this off? Um, that is the life, that is the life of faith. And, um, and it's been stretched, uh, very much so, um, in building, um, being a part of building, you know, sackcloth and ashes and I'll love your city. And I want to live a life where I don't know what's going to happen next. And that to me is like the epitome of me surrendering to something bigger than myself and trusting that things are going to work out for the good. And, um, yeah, being willing to risk it all, being willing to give it up. And, um, you know, to use a, an analogy of like, you know, the Abraham, uh, Isaac story, you know, where Abraham gets asked to, you know, <laughs> uh, to kill his son. And, um, it's an extremely gory, gruesome story. And he, he's willing to do it and, uh, gets to the top of the mountain. And just before he does, uh, God provides a ram in the thicket. And, um, I can't tell you how many times that that's happened to me. And, uh, yeah, you know, going through seasons, uh, as we speak of being willing to risk it all and have my hand in the air, so to speak. And God provides a ram in the thicket. So that's the life of faith for me. Um, I'm constantly in a, a place of trust that this is all going to work out. And if it doesn't, that I trust that that's the way that God would want it for me. You know, um, sackcloth and ashes is not my baby. It's not something that I'm attached to. It's something that I'm leading and that I'm responsible for in this season of my life. And, uh, and I'll continue to lead in whatever God wants me to lead for as long as he wants me to lead. And that's just the reality of it. And, uh, and I'm committed to that. Risk is everything. Nothing worth having is ever achieved without taking big risks. As you were talking, I was just thinking about an important moment in my own life uh, some years ago where I felt like I should take a risk, take a big chance that would have huge impacts on me and my family and a lot of other people that I cared about. And I was afraid. And in a very desperate hour, trying to figure it out, um, resisting taking the risk and at the same time knowing that if I didn't do that, if I didn't assume the risk, I would, I'd, I'd lose life. And in that moment, I just really felt like the Lord impressed upon me, don't ever hold on to anything so tightly it would cause you to disobey me. And why not risk them for a greater good? There you are, Bob Dalton. You're risking for the greater good. All That to Say is a podcast that tries to introduce uh, ideas and have solid conversation, authentic and legitimate conversation about 
life and the way of life and the way of life of Jesus. And here you are. You've brought us so much to think about. If any of our audience today wanted to learn more, there is loveyourcity.org, right? Straight up, just go to loveyourcity.org and you can find places in your community where you can invest, where you can take some risks, where you can get involved. You can go to sackclothandashes.org, right? Uh, and sackcloth and ashes, just Google it up and you'll see this amazing collection of blankets. And then understand when you're looking at that a little bit about the backstory and how your purchase of that blanket, which is something that's going to work for you in your house, is also going to help someone else maybe find a house someday. Oh, and by the way, if you go to sackcloth and ashes, you can also see, I saw it on there. I could order a copy up of Everyone is Someone. And uh, the book's available there too. Mm -hmm. And then there's that podcast. What's the podcast called? Love Your City Podcast. Love Your City Podcast. That's pretty straightforward. All right. Now, Bob Dalton, after all this uh, time, thank you for your time and thank you for your energy and just thoughtfulness. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone? This whole conversation started back with uh, your mom. She was uh, found herself on the streets. In addition to buying a blanket uh, from sackcloth and ashes, that's going to do something. But what would you say to this audience today who may pass by people who appear to be homeless or are living outside or aren't fitting into the conventional box? What would you say to us about that whole issue and what we might do about it or how we should think about it? Yeah, the very least common denominator, look people in the eyes, acknowledge them as human beings. Um, you know, those people are someone's mother or father or sister or brother. You know, these are real people with real stories. They've gone through very difficult circumstances. And so will you. Um, we all go through difficult circumstances. That's the reality. Um, it's important to know that these are not homeless people. They are people who are homeless and and uh, we live in a very label-based society. And I think that, you know, anytime that you can look people in the eye, acknowledge them as a human being, smile. Um, most of the time, I don't have anything to give people on the street, you know, when I'm driving by. Um, but I look them in the eyes and I, I nod my head and I acknowledge them. And uh, uh, that's a start, you know, seeing people, mm -hmm. seeing people as people. Um, and then, you know, on a practical level, uh, I'll just say real quick that, you know, to find whatever your life's purpose is, you need to answer two questions. One is, uh, what brings you joy? That's the question of, you know, what's the craft you love to do? You know, what wakes you up in the morning? Um, and many people figure that out in their lives and they're still not fulfilled. A lot of successful people who are doing what they love, doing the craft that they're good at are not fulfilled. The second question is, what is the injustice that you absolutely hate? That could be, could be connected to your childhood. That could be connected to something that you've seen in society. But something that, um, that's the question where you lose sleep at night. And um, when you can do what brings you joy to bring relief to the injustice that you hate, that's when you've found your purpose. Um, and so I'm always encouraging people, don't just find out what you love, what you're good at, um, how to make money, but figure out what what moves you, what, what injustice you hate and, uh, and do something about it, find a creative way to do something about it. And, uh, and you'll start to see that you're going to be living more and more into the reality of 
why you're actually here. All that to say, Bob Dalton is changing the world, for heaven's sake, that's what I'd say. So glad to see you, Bob. Thanks again for your time today, and may the Lord bless and prosper your every step for the good you do. Thank you so much, Jim. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.